You know, almost every month of the year, my family is celebrating something. This month it's a birthday. Last month it was five birthdays. Next month and the months after that will be a series of anniversaries and then all of a sudden we start the cycle all over again. I bet your family is similar. Maybe with, you don't have five kids, so maybe they're not quite as many birthdays to, to work through. Um, but I, I bet your family is similar. Always, always celebrating something. We, we like to celebrate. Everybody likes a party. We tend to celebrate, if you think about it, we, we tend to celebrate milestones, birthdays, the anniversary of your birth, wedding anniversaries, the anniversary of that big day, you know, a job anniversary. We, we tend to celebrate anniversaries, these, these milestones, markers that look back to a significant event in our past that, that really matters to us, that we don't want to forget. And that backward look is crucial when it comes to these kinds of celebrations, right? We never want to get ahead of ourselves when it comes to celebration. How many times has a game been lost because the team started celebrating too early, right? How, how many times has disappointment struck when, when we, we assumed that we got the job or landed the date or, or made the grade and then realized we didn't? And we had to backtrack. Celebrations, as a rule, mark what has happened, not what will happen. Very early on, we all learn never to count your chickens before they hatch, right? Which I want to suggest makes today really odd. This is a really strange celebration. Now, I want to be really clear. Easter is the biggest celebration that we have as Christians. It, it, it's, the, it's the high point. If you keep an annual calendar, Christian calendar, and this is the high point of the year. But I just want to ask you, what are we celebrating? Are we celebrating that a man got up from the dead? Maybe that's what you're accustomed to thinking. But if that's all we're celebrating, if that's all there is, we're celebrating that a man got it from the dead, then doesn't that make his, doesn't, doesn't that make this his celebration, not ours? Christians insist that Easter is actually a celebration for us, not just for Jesus. Why is that? Well, today we are concluding our study of the book of Esther. So if you're just showing up today, I'm sorry, we're at the end of a really rollicking good story. I'm going to try to catch you up in a minute. It's just been this amazing story of, of ordinary people making actually sometimes very morally ambiguous decisions amidst high political drama and the fate of God's people hangs in the balance the whole way through. Well, we get, we're, we're at the end of the book today. And the book ends with, with a resounding victory and a new annual celebration for the people of God, for the Jews. 
But, but the question I want you to think about is what, what if that celebration and what if our celebration today on Easter is not just a memorial of the past, but a picture of the future, a future that we're actually already celebrating? What would that mean for you? Turn, turn with me, if you would, to Esther chapter 9. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, uh, it's on page 438, Esther chapter 9. As you're, as you're finding it, uh, I'm going to catch you up. I, I, I don't assume everybody's been here for the whole series, and not everybody's been here for each part of the series. So let me just quickly give you a synopsis of what's going on in Esther. It's, it's the eve, it, the book opens on the eve of of King Xerxes, who's called King Ahasuerus in, this, in, in the book of Esther. It's a, it's a joke name. It means King Headache. But, but King Xerxes, the, the king of Persia, is about to invade Greece. And on the eve of that invasion, he finds that he needs a new queen. And after a long process, and it takes several years, Esther is his choice. Now, in the meantime, while that's all going on, Mordecai, her uncle, saves the life of the king, but the king actually doesn't know about it. Um, but, but, at, but also at the same time, Mordecai, her uncle, manages to offend this guy named Haman, who is the prime minister of the kingdom. He's like second in command. Now, here's the thing. No one knows that Mordecai and Esther are related. And no one knows that Esther is Jewish. Well, Haman is really offended at Mordecai because, because, he's, because he's just a bad guy, right? He's really offended at Mordecai, and so he decides it's not enough to just, like, kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill all the Jews. I'm going to destroy every single one of them. So he, so he hatches this plan, gets the king in on it, and, and so we're in the middle of this kind of high political drama, and Queen Esther has to take her life into her own hands in order to save her people and undo Haman's plot. It is dramatic. It is like crazy. And she is wicked smart. In the end, Haman is undone by his pride. Mordecai is promoted to be prime minister. And as we're going to see today, Esther and Mordecai actually do save their people. The Jews are saved. All right, so at one level, that's the story. But at another level, and this is actually what makes this book so amazing, at every step of the way, the plot has advanced not because of Esther's bravery or Mordecai's cunning, but because of a series of seemingly random and quite remarkable coincidences. It's why the title of this sermon series was, It Just So Happens. You see, behind the scenes, never mentioned, but always present, God has been providentially moving people and events in order to accomplish his purpose to save his people. And this morning, we're going to see how that victory was actually accomplished in the year 474 B.C. What I want you to consider is how that victory in the past points to another victory in the future. And it is that future victory that we are celebrating today. I think it was on the screen earlier. We'll put it back up. Here's, here's, here's the thing I want to convince you of. Easter isn't our celebration of Jesus' past, but of our future.
It's not our celebration of Jesus past, something that just happened to him. Easter is our celebration of our future. The question is, is it your future? We're going to consider the end of Esther and its significance for our lives in three movements. I'll give you the outline here in advance in case it helps you take notes. First, we're going to see the tables will be turned. The tables will be turned. Second, we're going to see that the party has been announced already. It's already been announced. And third, we're going to find that we're already celebrating. We're already celebrating. Easter isn't a celebration of Jesus' past. It is a celebration of our future. Is it yours? Well, first, the tables will be turned. Why will the tables be turned? Because they already have been. Let's, let's pick it up with verse 1 of chapter 9. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the royal civil administrators, aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erasai, Eridai, and Vizatha. They killed these ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's ten sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. And may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done. So a law was announced in Susa and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa. But they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. All right, when the fateful day arrives, the 13th day of the 12th month, just the opposite of what Haman had planned actually happened. The tables are turned. Instead of the Jews being destroyed, killed, and annihilated, it's their enemies who are destroyed, killed, 
and annihilated. The same words keep getting used over and over again that go all the way back to Haman's original decree. And and what we also see is is there in verse 3, the satraps, governors, and bureaucrats who were supposed to help the enemies of the Jews in Haman's original order actually turn, and they, they helped the Jews instead because, we're told, Mordecai's power and fame had grown. These are politicians. They know which side the bread is buttered on. Now, the story focuses on the capital city of Susa. And you see it in particular there, uh, beginning in, in verse 11, but really six, but re- really beginning, in, I guess, in verse, uh, in, in verse 5 and 6. Why Susa? Well, Susa was the seat of Haman's power. It was the seat of government. It's where all of Haman's closest allies were. 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons, are killed in one day. We see that in verses 6 to 10. When the report comes to the king, he turns to Esther and says, what else do you want? You see that there in verse 12. And then you see a reply. Are you shocked at her reply? If you've been following along the story, you shouldn't be. This is no Disney princess, right? Her name is Esther, which is derived from Ishtar, which is the Persian goddess of love and war. We've seen the love. Now we're getting the war. She asks for another day. Another day, especially in Susa, to root out all of Haman's allies and to publicly display his dead sons on the gallows as a political statement. And Queen Esther gets what Queen Esther wants. The final tally is stunning. We're told by the time all the reports come in from the provinces, and I understand this is a round number, but it's it's conveying what needs to be conveyed. 75,000 men killed. I mean, we're, we're reeling at the numbers that we're seeing come out of Ukraine. And thus far, anyway, they're nothing like this. This is a decisive complete, final victory over their enemies. The Jews had won. And so the next day is a day of rest. Why? Because they found relief from their enemies. We're told that twice in verses 16 to 18. But we're also told something else, something kind of interesting. I don't know if you noticed. It was mentioned three times, so we wouldn't miss it. They did not seize the plunder. You see that in verse 10, verse 15, and again in verse 16. Now, that's interesting because Haman's original decree had been all about the plunder. And Mordecai's decree, because it was the exact opposite of Haman's, also allowed them to take plunder. He just kind of reversed the whole original plot. But we're told three times they did not take any plunder. I realize that all of these details, especially on Easter Sunday, are gruesome. But there is a point. This is not just an account of civil war or ethnic cleansing. This is an account of holy war. And therefore, it is meant to be a picture for us of judgment day. The last day. 
Now, the rules of holy war in the Old Testament were very clear. First, only God could declare holy war. People couldn't declare holy war on their own. Only God could declare it, which he did. He did in, in the Pentateuch. He declared holy war against the seven nations that Israel was going to go in and dispossess from the land of Palestine. Plus one more. The Amalekites. We've talked about this before. God declared holy war against the Amalekites because on their way out of Egypt to the promised land, the Amalekites, for no reason at all, tried to wipe out the Israelites. And so God declared holy war against them as well. In all eight cases, it was to be an act of final judgment. As if judgment day had come early into history because the sin of that particular nation had reached the limit that God had set for it. So that's the first thing about holy war. Only God can declare it. Second, because it was final judgment, not just discipline, but final judgment, destruction was to be complete. No pity. No mercy. No second chances. Third, in holy war, no plunder was allowed. You see, it's final judgment. Everything is to be given to God. At the beginning of Esther, we were told that Haman was the descendant of King Agag, king of the Amalekites. And at the beginning of Esther, we were also told that Mordecai, and therefore his niece, Esther, were descendants of King Saul the first king of Israel. In 1 Samuel 15, and we've talked about this before, Saul was rejected as king. Why? Because he failed to prosecute the holy war that God had commanded against the Amalekites. It is the account of Saul's fall. Is Genesis 3. In the end, he and his son's bodies would be nailed to a wall in public disgrace. A picture of judgment. Esther is bringing that particular story arc to completion. And now what we see is Saul's descendants faithfully prosecuting the holy war against Agag's Descendants, both literal and spiritual. No plunder was taken. No pity was shown. And it's Haman and his son's bodies who are impaled on the gallows. Talking about holy war is uncomfortable. I get that. I have a feeling that if you're not normally here on a Sunday morning, you did not expect to hear about Holy War on Easter. And I understand that the topic of Holy War is going to raise way more questions than I can answer this morning. But what I want you to understand is that the Bible's point about Holy War is not that some people are better than other people, that some people deserve to be destroyed in Holy War and others don't. Now, the point of holy war at the end of the day is that everyone stands under God's judgment. 
You see, God declared holy war at the very beginning. He declared holy war against sin when he told our first parents, Adam and Eve, that the day they disobeyed him, the day they rebelled against him, they would die. When they did, and they did, he exiled them from the garden. And to make very clear what the punishment was, he placed an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden. There is no way back in except through death. But God did something else. He immediately established sacrifice. We, we, we see sacrifices being offered almost from the, 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 the next day. And what we particularly see is the establishment of the whole burnt offering of an animal in the place of the rebel. No plunder, everything given over, the whole animal given over in place of the rebel, the sinner. We need to understand that from then on, every sacrifice that God's people ever made was a symbolic enactment of holy war against themselves. It it was an acknowledgement that that animal's death should be their own. In holy war, God reminds us and he assures us that judgment day is coming. And every human death is yet another reminder. On that day, a day that he has already set, the tables will be turned. I know in this life it looks like sin and wickedness is fun and pays. The people that ignore the, the rules, the people that are willing to, to I, I don't know, play, play fast and loose with ethics, the people who simply focus on themselves, they're the people to get ahead. Friends, the Bible is very clear on this. On Judgment Day, the tables will be turned. All who persist in sin and rebellion will be judged. There will be be no excuse on that day. There will be no exception on that day. There will be no second chance on that day. There will be no pity on that day. God's judgment against sin and wickedness and evil His judgment and his victory over all of that will be complete. That raises a question, doesn't it? Who's going to survive Judgment Day? Who's going to be around on that day to celebrate? Did you notice in Esther here who survived that day? Did Did you notice who didn't get killed? All the way back there in verse three, all those who aided the Jews, God's people, all those who aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. Now, I I don't think that the author of Esther is saying that on that day, like the rest of the Persian Empire converted and became Jewish. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's not saying they're converted. 
But he is very clearly alluding to a promise that God made all the way back in Genesis 12. When he said to Abraham, the father of the Jews, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. Salvation on that day. Blessing on that day came by aligning yourself with the promises of God as given to the people of God. Now that promise, all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12, that promise, that I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, that promise is the kernel of the good news of Christianity. And that promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the true Israel. Paul tells us, and the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, that the promises were spoken to Abraham, and he has this particular promise in mind, the promise back there in Genesis 12. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, who is Christ. In his letter to the Romans, Paul would go on to explain how that promise came true. On the cross, Jesus Christ suffered the holy war of God. He suffered it. As an innocent substitute, a sacrifice in the place of sinners. Why did he do that? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, he did it so that God, the Father, would be righteous, judging sin on the cross in the person of his Son, and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, when we associate with Jesus by faith, when we align ourselves with Jesus by faith, when we agree with him against ourselves, which we call repentance, do you know what happens? The tables are turned. The tables are turned for us. The judgment of judgment day happens for us back there in the past, on the cross, in Christ. So that all that waits for us in the, is, is a future of well, what's described here in Esther 9, rest and relief. Which is the true promised land. Heaven itself. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... I want you to understand what it means to become a Christian. It's what I've just been talking about. It's not, it's not all about like rules. It's not, it's not finally all all about trying to clean yourself up and be a better person. No, No, becoming a Christian is about finally agreeing with God that you do deserve his condemnation. And then trusting God that in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, he took that condemnation for you. So that your judgment day has already happened. That is what it means to become a Christian. It is an act of repentance and faith that happens. It's got to happen at some point. You're not born this way. But then then continues to live itself out. In daily repentance and faith, 
daily agreeing with God, daily again trusting God. That yes, judgment day, which is what turns everybody off about church and makes everybody afraid of the future. Judgment day for me is behind me. That is what it means to become a Christian. And that is what we would love for you today. We'd love to talk to you about this more. Please, if you haven't, if you'd like to think about what would this mean for me, talk with the person that you came with. But find, find one of us after the service and talk to us. Easter Sunday is about your future. If you will align yourself with Jesus today. So what is that future going to look like? What, what, what is that, that rest and relief? What's it going to be like? Well, it's going to be like a party. And what I want you to see second is that this party's already been announced. It's already been announced. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews and all the king Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year, because during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the purr, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim from the word purr. Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year, according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote a second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurance of peace and security to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerush in order to confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. So Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were then written into the record. Not once, but twice in these verses, an annual party is actually legislated, required, obligated partying. That's what it is. It's called Purim. And why is it called Purim? Well, we're told in verses 24 and 25, because Haman had cast the purr, that is the lot, the dice, for their destruction, but all of it had returned on his own head, we're told. Now, Purim happens in the last month of the Jewish year. They actually just celebrated it one month ago. It comes one month before Passover, which always happens right at the same time as Easter. And it's far more than Hanukkah. It's, that's, that should be way more like their Christmas, right? I mean, it is 
gift-giving and feasting and uh, just rejoicing. There are two things, though, that we need to notice about this legislation. First, I've already mentioned it, it's a party. It's a feast, not a fast. Now, up until this point, only Moses had established national, binding, obligatory celebrations, parties. The, the, the week of, of feasting around Passover, the week of feasting around Pentecost, and the week of feasting around tabernacles, or, or the, the, the final bringing in of the harvest. Now, what's interesting about those three parties, and they were week-long parties, festivals, is, is that they celebrated a, a previous experience of national salvation. They, they celebrated the exodus and then the inheritance, the coming into of the promised land. Now, all of a sudden, hundreds of years later, Queen Esther is legislating a new celebration. She's standing there like a second Moses. Mordecai is too. And, and in their legislation, the, the, the people are told to, to feast, to, to rejoice, give gifts to each other, be, be generous, give gifts to the poor. And why should you do that? So you don't forget what happened. Just like any anniversary or celebration that we do, right? So we don't forget what happened. There's a second thing, though, that we need to notice about this party that's been announced. This party starts while they're still in exile. The the festivals that Moses established in the Old Testament, they didn't begin to celebrate them on a regular basis until after they had gotten into the promised land. Why? Well, because all of those celebrations marked the fulfillment of God's deliverance. Had they started celebrating the the, the festival about the harvest while they're still wandering around in the desert, like they would have been getting ahead of themselves, wouldn't they? Yeah. So all of those celebrations marked the fulfillment of God's promise. This party starts right away. Out there scattered about through the Persian Empire. It takes us back to the beginning of Esther. Because as you'll recall, Esther opens with a problem. Just as as we were thinking about the context of Esther, the question that is on the minds of the Jews is, could God keep his promises even though his people were outside the promised land? Could, Could God keep his promises to his people even though his people were exiled because of their sin? Would he be with them even when he seemed absent and all the markers of the visible kingdom of God were gone. The throne was gone. The temple was gone. The boundaries of Israel erased. This is the problem that Esther presses on us at the beginning. And now the book ends with an unambiguous answer of yes. The enemy of all God's people. You see that phrase there in verse 24? Haman, the enemy of all the Jews have been defeated. And so now Mordecai and Esther, standing there almost like a a second but but better Adam and Eve, 
right? They, they've done what should have been done, but wasn't done at the beginning. They have overcome the enemy. They have vanquished him. And so together they issue this new law that points to a new reality. Joy replaces lamentation. Fasting gives way to feasting. Peace and security, we're told in verses 30 and 31, are now going to be the rule, not the exception, for the life of the people of God. Friends, I'm here to tell you that this is a picture of what awaits us in Christ. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of heaven. Maybe you think of angels floating around and streets of gold. But but I think what you need to understand is that what Adam and Eve lost the human race in their rebellion is nothing less than joy. That's what we lost. We lost joy in the presence of God. You see, joy isn't simply a a, a feeling. Joy isn't simply happiness. Joy is being at peace. Being right with God. Joy is is what what comes from a, a deep knowledge of being exactly and fully who God created you to be without any effort. It's, it's, a, it's a rest. A rest from a, a, assault from evil from without that comes at us every day. It's a rest from the weakness and the, the wickedness that we find from within that trips us up every day. It is fulfillment and abundance in everything good. It's feasting. Some of you are going to feast later today. That's just a, a pale glimpse, just a little, a little picture of the fullness and abundance that awaits us in heaven. But it's not just feasting. It's also perfect love. Love for God, love for neighbor. That's the rejoicing. As nothing interrupts your delight anymore. Because your delight is no longer focused on yourself. But is instead focused on God and neighbor as it was always meant to be. Friends, that's the party that's already been announced. Because Jesus turned the tables at the cross. But I don't know if you noticed, we're not, we're not in heaven yet. Here we are, still in exile. And so like the Jews in Persia, we need regular reminders. Not of what happened in the past so much, but of what's coming in the future. And and I'm here just to remind you, friends, that, that this is what a local church is all about. You see, as, as Christians, we don't so much have an annual celebration like the Jews did as we have a weekly one. Now, I know this is Easter Sunday, which is great. Um, but, but you understand, right, that, that every single Sunday, 52 of them every year, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. The Lord Jesus gave us a, a, a weekly calendar, not an annual one. And so when we gather every single Sunday, not just Easter Sunday, what are we doing? We're gathering not to look back. We're gathering to look ahead, to be reminded of where we're going. 
so that we know how to live today. The book of Hebrews tells us that every Lord's day we've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. Paul tells us that, and we heard this read earlier, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death till when? Till he comes. The Lord's Supper, yes, it looks back, but it is mainly looking forward. That's how certain this party is that's already been announced. Do we live like it? Christian, do you live like it? Are you living as one who is on their way to the best party that is ever going to be? And and friends, if, if you're not a Christian, understand, this is why we're always talking about it. When we invite you to put your faith in Christ, we're not asking you to get religious. We're not asking you to become legalistic. We're asking you to come to a party that's more certain than the sun rising tomorrow. Why? Because Jesus got up from the dead. We do not listen for the voice of a dead man. No, we are listening to the voice of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, who even today invites us to join him at his party at the end of the world. And what a party that's going to be. Which leads us finally and very briefly to the good news that in Christ we are already celebrating we are already celebrating. Look at, look at Esther 10, really short. So short point, short, short chapter, short point. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores. All of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him, have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all his descendants. Esther concludes with what can only be called a, like a very brief description of what can only be called Mordecai's glorious reign. Now, it might seem odd to end with Mordecai since the entire book has been about Esther. But, but really, I think we're supposed to see the previous paragraph and this paragraph together as the entire book makes clear Mordecai would not have risen to his rank without Esther. Esther would never have become queen without Mordecai. They're a pair. And together, they stand here at the end of the book as a picture of godly, righteous rule on behalf of God's people. Pursuing their prosperity, speaking well, that is, that is interceding with the king for the well-being of their descendants. And it's happening while they live in exile under a pagan king. And Mordecai enters into this glorious reign only after the enemies of God's people were defeated. And in that, once again, I think he, together with Esther, points us to Jesus on judgment day, the conquering King Jesus. You can read about this in Revelation 19. The conquering King Jesus will finally and fully put down all evil and he will consummate his reign. 
They will be for all eternity. And for all eternity, he will be pursuing the prosperity of his people. For all eternity, he will be speaking and ruling for the well-being of his people. But that glorious rule is not in front of Jesus. That glorious rule began the moment he walked out of the tomb. Forty days after his resurrection, we're told that Jesus ascended to heaven. Why? So that he could sit at the right hand of God himself, ruling and reigning for the good of his people. Already, Jesus is pursuing our spiritual prosperity. Already, Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of the king. And so, Christian, already we are celebrating. We are celebrating. I hope, I hope I can convince you that this should sound more like your life going forward. The victory has been won. The reign of Christ has begun. The defeat of sin and Satan is already accomplished by his spirit. He's already made us alive with new creation life. Through his word, he is ruling us well and perfectly in the church. And he is conforming us to his perfect image, which is the prosperity that we need to be like Jesus. Yeah, we're still in exile. Yes, I know sin still remains. Yes, the world is still the enemy of God's people. But Christian, if I can convince you of anything today, let me convince you that the outcome is not in doubt. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof. The best may be yet to come. But make no mistake, because Jesus is alive The best has already begun. Live like that. Why do we celebrate Easter? Not just because of what happened. We celebrate Easter because of what will happen. Easter may be and is a celebration of Jesus' past. But if you are in Christ, it is even more a celebration of your future. And friend, that future can begin today. Would you pray with me? I want to invite you to take just a moment in the quietness of your heart, think about what it would mean For you to align yourself with Jesus today. Think about what repentance and faith would mean specifically for you. And just talk to God for a moment about that. Lord God, your grace so abundant that you would allow rebels like us to sue for peace, to align ourselves with Jesus and so benefit from all that he has done. Well, there's so much in our lives, in our hearts that wars against that, that pulls against it, 
that tells us that, that we ought not. It's a bad deal. Lord, we pray that you would open blind eyes, that you would soften our hearts, that we would not be deceived by the enemy, but that we would instead see that your victory is sure. It is guaranteed by your resurrection. And so use that, we pray, to both compel us and woo us to align ourselves with you, knowing that you do not turn away any that come to you in faith. And Lord, we pray in the week ahead that you would give us the vision, the eyes to see, to live in the joy and the confidence of the future that your resurrection has guaranteed. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.